0: <laughs> Let's turn to Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. So, the last three weeks, and this is our final week, our fourth week, we've been talking about relationship status and what our relationship with Christ looks like. And so, we've spent a few weeks. First week, we talked about justification. Then, we talked about propitiation. Then, we talked about regeneration. And I figured we'd stay with the shuns. And today, we'll talk about sanctification. And so this is the part of the process where a lot of Christians get left in the dust, right? This is the part of the process where too many of us say, "Ah, I got my ticket to heaven. I'll just stay where I'm at. I'll just keep going the way I've been going. I'll keep living my life the way I've been living it and just rest in the goodness of God that he saved me. Now, here's the thing. God is loving He sent Christ to die for our sins. And if you're truly committed to him and truly believe in him and never do another good deed the rest of your life, but you believe in Christ for salvation and you follow him with all your heart, you're a Christian. But let let me put it to you this way. So we've got a lot of beautiful babies around our church, right? I've got three girls of my own. Uh, The Beechers have... Three wonderful boys, two, no, I I just called Hadley a boy. Don't tell her I said that. She's going to get mad. Two boys and a girl. Uh, The Scots have beautiful children. Uh, This morning, uh, Chelsea and Matt brought their new baby, so make sure you check that dude out. Miles is awesome later in the day. But imagine this. Imagine my, I'll use my own, because I don't want to make fun of anybody else's kids. I'll use my own. So imagine Caitlin, who's three right now, never progressed in maturity from where she is today. So let's say 20 years from now, we got a 23-year-old Caitlin who still climbs in my bed at night and still cries for cereal in the morning and still whines all through the day because she wants toys, still can't go in Walmart without looking for a Shopkin. Would that be healthy? Would that be normal? Would that be okay? In fact, I can remember as a teenager, so, so I'll give you a little glimpse into my uh, weird mindset. As a teenager, the scariest thing I ever saw, I can remember, I, I probably was 12, 13, 14, somewhere in that range. And somebody at somebody's birthday party, they watched this horror movie. I don't even remember what the movie was. I don't remember what it was about. But I remember one thing that from the time I saw that movie all the way till probably freshman year in college was a recurring nightmare. And it was this grown man, probably about a 350-pound man, in a diaper, and he just had never matured. And he was like one of the monsters in this scary movie. And it was a terrifying thing. And and I thought about that. And the thing about it that makes it so scary is that we as humans know that as you are older, you should be more mature. And when that isn't the case, something is wrong. Something is not right. And so as Christians, we've got to remember that same thing. And so this principle is taught to us. By, by peter it's taught to us by uh, by paul and today we're going to see it actually in uh, philippians as well but i want to look at first peter chapter 2 verse 2 so as as you hold your finger in philippians chapter 2 turn over to first peter chapter 2 and i want to just read one verse out of first peter and then we're going to jump over to another passage just as way of introduction so first peter chapter 2 verse 2 here's what the bible says Like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Now, here's what Peter says. As a new believer, God's word is the milk that's going to cause you to grow, that's going to cause you to mature, that's going to cause you to change from being a baby into being a mature believer. Now I want to jump over to Paul, talks about the same idea in Hebrews chapter 5. So just a couple pages back in the Bible, Hebrews chapter five, here's what Paul says about it in verse number 12. So Hebrews five verse 12, I'm going to read through 14, It says this, for though, uh, "For though by time you ought to be teachers, you have, uh, for by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need the milk and not solid food." For everyone who partakes of milk only is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant, but solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Are you picking up on the fact that as believers, the same way as humans we grow, and any animal grows into maturity and changes their behavior and acts in a different way, Paul and Peter tells us the same thing. When you're a young believer, sure, the, the, the things that we think about as elementary to being a believer, those are what you should feed on. You should grow in those things. A lot of times in our modern day church, we call that discipleship, that you should have someone come alongside you and teach you the principles of faith. But he says he says, you shouldn't stop there. You shouldn't go your whole life just drinking milk. You shouldn't go your whole life just needing somebody to explain everything about Scripture to you. He says, you should be eating solid food, right? So if a child goes to to three, four, five years old and cannot chew and cannot eat solid food, you have to begin working with that child to bring them to maturity. But as Christians, sadly, many of us go for years and years, decades and decades, maybe a lifetime, and only Ever drink milk. We never progress in maturity. We never go past the point of needing someone else to cater to all of our needs. You know, we're told in the Bible that we're supposed to be conformed to the image of Christ, which means that Christ, he says, he didn't come to be served, but to serve. He didn't come to be celebrated, but to die for our sins. And so as we mature and we progress towards what Christ looks like, we should need to be coddled less. Right? And I don't, I don't mean to step on any toes. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying. In fact, this is not John. This is Scripture. As we progress as believers, we should be the ones being careful not to hurt others. We should be willing to put ourselves as secondary for the cause of Christ. And so that's what we're going to talk about today as we talk about this maturing or sanctification of God. All right, so Philippians chapter 2. Here's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time today. Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse number 12. And as you turn there, here's our question today. Do I need to change? How and why? Pretty simple, right? So it's three questions. I won't take three times as long, I promise. But do I need to change? How do I change? Why should I change? Right? And so this is talking about from the day I accept Christ, should there be a progression. So first, uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, I want you to catch that phrase. You guys have probably heard that phrase before. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And in fact, as a teenager, I can remember at least five youth conferences where the whole theme was exercise And they were talking about like lifting weights. I'm working out my salvation. And the idea was that now that Christ has come in, I have to do the hard work of being a Christian. That's not what Paul's saying here. I want you to look at the next verse he says here. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Listen to what he says in verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So here's what he says. Work out your salvation, but know this. God's the one doing the work. It seems, like, seems kind of like a uh, contradiction, right? It seems like he's saying one thing in one sentence and another thing in the other. But what we have to understand is when he says, work out your salvation, what he's saying is more like this, let your salvation show. Think about it that way. When he says, work out your salvation, I want you to think about that term as let it show. You know what? Sometimes my, uh, my, the fact that I'm a fan of the Kentucky Wildcats, that shows. See, so today, they won yesterday. Now, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you, do you need me? You're waving at me? You're pointing down? Oh, he hates Kentucky. I just caught it. <laughs> Anthony, from the back, I'm thinking he's saying, be quiet. You're yelling. He's booing my team from the back. That's what's <laughs> happening. So anyhow, I just have to be honest. This is, Oh, he's doing the gator chomp. Quit. I'm going to kick you out. You're going to be out of here. All right. I'll be honest with you. Even as a pastor, I fall prey to superstition. Here's what happened. Last week, after the... After the uh, Wildcats, well, two weeks ago, the Wildcats beat the Gators in football, which no, I, I'm sure none of you care, but I care. I wore this stupid little watch band, right? It has the UK symbol on there. This morning, literally, as I was getting ready, I thought, well, we won another big game, and if I don't wear that watch band, what if that was like the, the the lucky the lucky token that did it? Now, here's the thing. I'm a pastor. I don't really believe in luck. I know that it's not, there is no luck, there is no... But I still felt the impulse, I should wear this watch band. You know, it's not, it's not real, but I, I still should wear the watch band. But the point is this, sometimes my fandom shows, right? So what I really am, who I am to my core, starts to peek out in my regular conversation and what's going on in my life. Here's what he's saying. When he says, work out your salvation, he says, in your day-to-day life, as you walk through this life, let that salvation show, Let it come out. Let those around you see. And I'll I'll show you that in the rest of the passage as we go on, but let's go on reading. So he says, Work out your salvation with fear and uh, trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Verse 14 says this, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ, you will have reason, uh, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. God, I thank you so much for salvation. I thank you for dying on the cross for my sins and for the sins of the world. God, I pray that you just help us to be faithful, to let our salvation show in our lives so that those around us can know that you are the way to salvation. Lord, bless your word today, help it to be clear, help it to be useful, and Lord, I pray that it would change our attitudes, change our actions, change our mindset as we leave today and walk into our everyday lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So I've got just three points this week, just three quick points, and the first one is this, we must grow as we go. We must grow as we go. Now, I think this is a neat phrase. Actually, this is another thing that I picked up this summer when we took the teens to camp at Camp Anderson. The speaker said that multiple times when he was talking about talking to kids about how their life is not going to look exactly perfect tomorrow that just because they became a believer didn't mean they would never sin again. Just because they became a believer did not mean that now they're going to be absolutely perfect. He talked about the fact that we are called to go and grow at the same time. You got to keep living and you got to progress towards what christ has called you to be to conform to his image and so here as we look at this idea that we have to grow as we go i want you to see in verse number 12 uh, a couple words in here's what paul uh, Paul says to the philippians he says just as you have always obeyed okay so i want you to catch this progression not as in my presence only but now much more in my absence so here's what he's saying you're already obeying Okay? And so he's not talking to a group of believers that's completely carnal and he's saying, you guys are messing everything up, you're just failing, you got to just start over, we've got to start from scratch. What he's saying is, "All right, you're obeying, but you should be obeying even more. You should be progressing in this obedience. We see this, this progression played out also in another passage. You're welcome to turn with me or else I'll read it here from John chapter 15. John chapter 15 I'm going to just read the first 5 verses. I want you to catch what he's saying here. It says I am the true vine and my and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it. All right, I want you to start catching this progression. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it. Catch this, that it may bear more fruit. Verse 3 he says you are already clean because of the Lord uh, of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, And the, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. Catch the verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you hear that progression? He says, a branch that bears no fruit is of no value. That's what he really says. It's going to be tossed away. It's going to be cut away and thrown into the fire. Those are people that are not believers. Throughout scripture, you see this repeated. If there is not fruit in your life, you're not connected to the tree. Every branch that's connected to the vine is going to produce fruit. In fact, uh, we heard it another way when we talked about follow me. The Bible said this, follow me and you'll be fishers of men. You will produce fruit. Now, here's the thing. The only fruit is not more believers. There's other fruits in your life. In fact, we've got the fruits of the Spirit. It's going to be a change in your demeanor, the change in the way that you act, a change in the way that you talk to each other. And in fact, Paul's going to talk about that a little bit further in this passage. But what he's saying here is that there should be a progression in your life if you're connected to the vine. You went from no fruit to fruit, from fruit to more fruit, and from more fruit to much fruit. And he gives that very clear progression here all throughout uh, John chapter 15. And so I want you to understand, though, it's really easy, and, and I want to make this disclaimer as we go into it, for you to start thinking today that I'm telling you, try harder, do better, work more, spend more time, yada, 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 fill in the blank with whatever you think it is that would make you more holy. But here's what the Bible is saying. All of these passages don't say, try harder to make more fruit. It says, remain in me, abide in me, and I will do the work. And so the only thing as Christians that we've got to work at is our relationship with Jesus Christ. You say, well, what do you mean by that? The bi- and we're going to see it throughout this passage once again. You've got to be spending time in prayer, and you've got to be spending time in your Bible, and you've got to be spending time building that relationship with Christ. And what he's going to do is change all those other things that he's calling us to change. That's what he says over and over here. And so here, we understand that this progression is a progression of spiritual maturity. But not only is that a progression of spiritual maturity, we must recognize that this progression only develops and advances when we abide in him. The only way you grow is to be connected to the vine. If you're disconnected from the vine, you can try as hard as you want. You can think about it as much as you want. You can give as much as effort as you want. But if you are not abiding in Christ, you will not grow. You will not mature. There will not be change in your life. It only comes through Christ. And so here we see in uh, John 15, verse 4, the way that he words it is this. He says, He um, says, Abide in me. I want you to catch that phrase. It's a good phrase for you to underline in your Bible. Abide in me. That word abide means to live somewhere. So very similarly to the way that I talked about this church feels like home because we can be comfortable together. We can be honest together. We can love the Lord together. We can work hard together. We can do our best to serve Him together. That makes it home. But here's what he's saying. Abide in me means this is where I live every day. It's not something I do on Sunday for a couple hours. It's not something I do in the morning before I start my real day, right? I used to have that mindset, and some of you may be in the same spot. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I want you to think about this. Is your day structured in a way that you cut out the first two hours and you say, okay, I'm going to read my Bible, I'm going to pray, and then I've got to get that out of the way because as soon as I'm done with that, I've got to start doing real work. It's a very dangerous thing. In fact, I think a lot of times over the past years, pastors and Christians have advocated that way of thinking, that just this two hours belongs to God, because I need to dedicate it, and I need to you know, check this mark, and once I'm done with these two hours, then I move on with my day. But throughout Scripture, we see that He is supposed to be part of your job. He's supposed to be part of your finances. He's supposed to be part of your family. Every decision you make throughout your day is a God decision. Think about that. Now now, some of you, I, if you think like me, I know the first thing that popped into your head is, does God really care what I get at McDonald's, right? So, so maybe, maybe not so specific to like your meal choice or, or, or what, what you're, uh, you're going to watch necessarily, but more so, what, how am I going to do what I do today? How am I going to respond when somebody confronts me? How am I going to respond when something doesn't go my way, Because if we do what I used to do in college and just say, okay, God, you got this two hours in the morning, change me, and then I'm going, I'm running and doing the rest of my day. The rest of your day is going to be filled with wickedness. It really is. But if we have the mindset that, God, I am abiding in you today, every step that I take, every move that I make, every decision I make is going to filter through you, that's what he's looking for. That's spiritual maturity. That's what he's calling us to so he says abide in me and i in you verse number 14 is where we're at john chapter 15 abide in me verse 4 i'm sorry and i in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine catch this so neither can you unless you abide in me so here's step number one if you want to grow in christ you've got to abide in christ You have to be living there. It has to not just be a 15-minute thing in the morning. It can't just be, I read my devotion today and I'm all good. It has to be that my life is being filtered through what God wants me to do. Every moment, every decision. So we must recognize that that progression and development only happens when we live in Him. So first, we we grow as we go. But not only do we stop there, the second thing we need to understand is this. We must work out what he has worked in, okay? Let me repeat that. We must work out what he has worked in to us. And so we see that here, uh, and we're gonna just use a couple passages to, uh, to, to demonstrate that. We'll start in verse number 12 of Philippians chapter two, reading down through 14, the Bible says this. We'll pick up about halfway through the verses. work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. We're going to stop there just for a moment. So I want you to understand first that Jesus, uh, his work on the cross, has fully equipped and prepared us for what he's called us to be. So everything we need, every tool that we need, every attitude we need, everything we need in life, to serve Him and follow Him, has already been supplied. It's already been built into us. Last week we talked about the idea that it's been imputed onto our account and we just have to realize it's there. And that's what we're going to talk about in this first point. So everything that we need has been uh, supplied by God. First thing, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, here's the Bible says. He made him who knew no sin, catch this, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God In Him, Here's what he says. Our sin he took, his righteousness he gave. He took away our sin and put righteousness where it was. He took away our sin and made us right with God. We had no ability. In fact, the Bible and Paul tells us multiple times that our righteousness is as filthy rags. His righteousness is the only righteousness we have. Let me be very clear about that. And I I think this is something we should touch on. Even after you've been saved... You are still a scoundrel. say, oh, hang on, hang on a second, Pastor. Now you're stepping on my toes. I thought I was perfect now. Jesus saved me. Now I should be rich. Now I should be happy. Now I should be healthy. He's supposed to take care of all that. I should never struggle with sin again. I should never have temptation again. I'm saved. I have a new nature. The Bible says that. It does. And Paul also said that what I want to do, I don't do it. And what I don't want to do, I seem to always do it. And here's what Paul was saying even though Christ has saved me, I am still so unworthy. So often, as Christians, we want to bubble ourselves apart, right? We want to we quarantine the church. Well, we're all in here, and we're all perfect. Let me tell you something. If that's the stipulation, we all better get out of here, because none of us are perfect. If that's the rule, that you got to be perfect to be in here, we all better get out. Now, now, the thing that scares us, and the thing that we get challenged about... Is when we understand the grace of God and that he covers sin, we must be willing to accept the worst of sin. That's where we start to step away. And that's where you start to see some believers that start to say, Well, I don't know, I don't know if I can do this stuff. Like I don't know, you know, I don't know about having having somebody that sins like that. I don't know about somebody that has that struggle or lives in that part of town, or has this thing going on in their life. Let me tell you something. The Bible says this. The only difference in you and them is the grace of God. And the reason we have this church is so that we can introduce them to the grace of God. That's it. That's the only reason. If we're here for a museum, go next door. That's the museum. If we're here to look pretty and to do really well, listen, there's a lot of really nice museums and art galleries and things where you can look at the beauty of God's creation without worrying about sin. But let me tell you something, this is a church, Jesus said it this way, I didn't come to heal those that are not sick, I came to heal those who are sick. Let me tell you something, something's wrong with our church if we are not willing to welcome with open doors those who fall in sin. And something else is true. If we're not willing to to, to open our doors to those who struggle with sin, I better leave. Because I know I'm still a sinner. I know I'm still wicked. I know I'm still unworthy. But by the grace of God, I have been changed. And it's not because I'm good enough. It's not because I do well enough. It's not because I stand up here and look pretty, although I do my best, right? But it's only because of the grace of God. That's it. That alone and so let me tell you something if we have the proper perspective of this it's going to change our perspective on each other because as long as we see ourselves as perfect everybody else's fault is too great for us to bear did you catch that as long as we think we're perfect everybody else is not good enough have you caught yourself thinking that before like and, and I'll, i hey i'll be the one to admit it you're walking through the store and nobody can walk fast enough or they're walking on the wrong side. In fact, I was talking to somebody about this yesterday. I have invisible lines in my head. I don't know how they got there. I don't know who put them there. I think it has something to do with my mother, I'll be honest. But I have these invisible lines that if I'm not walking in these lines, I am annoyed, right? So if I'm in the store, just like in traffic, I walk on the right side of the the, the path. It seems pretty logical, right? Here's the problem. My daughters do not have these lines. I'm walking in a very straight line, as close to the side as I can, to not cause any discomfort or any inconvenience for anybody else. And here's Mariah. Woohoo! I love the store, hanging off the shelf, climbing up the side. Hey, everybody. And, and Mariah is the only one. The other two are a little bit like, or the other three are a little bit like me. But Mariah will walk through the store, a cart is coming right at her. She'll stand there. Hey, what are you doing? Like, He's trying to walk through the aisle, Mariah, and I'm grabbing her over. Leah's like, John, you are like so worried that they're in this little spot. Here's why. Here's why. Because we get so judgmental. And you know what that comes from? Is I think if I can be perfect, well, other people should be perfect too. Well, why aren't you staying on your side of the lane? Everybody knows. Well, we're not in England. Get on the right side. What's wrong with you? Right? That's how we think. And, it's, and if we think about it in these small things that way, how much more... Does it progress as things become impactful, right? How can we possibly be sharing the love of God if I cannot be bothered to walk on the left side instead of the right side of the aisle? And that's what happens. And I know that's kind of a funny example, but that's really what happens when I start to see myself as perfect and I think I'm following all the rules and I think I've got it all right. Everybody else is wrong and I'm annoyed at them. Does it sound like how we live our lives in America? really does right it really does you want to know the remedy for that remember that i'm not perfect remember that you're not perfect remember that you fail you know what it's and i'm not telling you to dwell in your failures but it's good for us to remember what god had to to forgive us of it's good for us to remember what jesus had to die on the cross for us for Because then when we see other people struggling, instead of a reaction of disgust or hatred or annoyance, now instead we have a reaction of love. We say, I can remember when I was there. Let me help you up." I can remember when I was there. Let me pull you up here. And if our church is not the lifeboat that's riding along Osprey and pulling people out of the waves of sin, then we're here for no reason. And I want to encourage you. As we see those that are different than us, because God bless them, we're all different. We all have struggles. We all have sins. As people begin to come here that have differences than us, we need to love them because we're not, we're not a cruise ship cruising down the sea of life, enjoying our luxury and enjoying our happiness and enjoying, in fact, the Bible says this, woe to them that are at ease in Zion. Zion. Just because life's good for you, don't get comfortable because that's not what you're called to. You're called to be the lifeboat that drives along and says, let me pull you up here because I've been there before. That's the perspective we've got to have. And so here's the passage he says. He, t- he tells us that we must work out what he has worked in. He's prepared us. His righteousness is the only righteousness we have. Secondly, we have all we need for Christian living. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says this. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness did you catch that his divine nature has provided for us everything pertaining to life and godliness here's what he says let me give it to you in our modern vernacular Jesus died to give us everything we need to live the way he's called us to live that's what he did he came and gave us the ability to live for him but it's not in ourselves it's only in him so here, he's given us everything we need to live in, in, in this life, to live a Christian life and demonstrate his love. <laughs> but not only this, we have his divine nature. He said that in the first part. Um, chapter 4, he says, For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. Listen to this. So that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Listen to this. Having escaped the corruption that is in this world through lust." He says, your divine nature allows you to escape the corruption of this world. A few moments ago, when I was talking about us being perfect and so everybody else has to be, you know what that's called? The corruption of this world. There's no more love. There's no more compassion. There's no more submission. There's no more yielding. It's all about me. I've got it right. You better get it right or I'm mad at you. That's what our world is. That's called corruption. You do it my way or you did it wrong. That's really what it boils down to. And so here's what he says, the way to escape that corruption that's in this world, and he says that corruption's in this world because of lust. That word lust means selfishness, selfish behavior. He said, I thought lust meant that, you know, sexual temptation. I thought it meant temptation to sin. It does, but if you look at the root of it, lust is me serving me before anything else. Sounds a lot like selfishness, right? So here's what he says, escaping the corruption that comes from selfishness. The way you do that is through the divine nature. Another way Paul says this is this. This mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who was equal with God, but but instead lowered himself to die for our sins. You want to know how we get rid of this corruption? You want to know how we stop living and expecting perfection and hating everybody because they can't be perfect? You want to know how we can stop being so judgmental? Here's how. Humble yourself and remember that Christ is the only reason you're any better than anybody else. And you say, well, that sounds weird. The only thing that improved us was Christ. The only thing that will grow us is Christ. The only thing that matures us is Christ, and we must abide in him. You say, well, okay, I don't understand how this all ties to sanctification. It is all sanctification. This whole passage is purely about sanctification. It's about the process of me being who I was, but the, pro- the power of God changing me to who he wants me to be. That's what sanctification is. That's what he's called us to. And so here, we jump down, (laughs) we need to understand this, not only is Jesus, uh, his work on the cross fully equipped us, but the second thing we need to see is this, he called us to work out this salvation in our lives. He called us to work this salvation out in our lives. So we're going to jump down to verse number 12, (laughs) just the second part of uh, verse 12, he says, work out your salvation. Now catch how he says this, he says three things that are really important. He says, work out your salvation, first thing, with fear and trembling. Second thing he says, for it is God who is at work in you, and there, here's the two sides of that, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So let's look at this. He's called us to work out his salvation. The first way he says that is with fear and trembling. Now here's the thing, this is another really unpopular uh, uh, doctrine in today, today's Christianity, so, so modern or mainstream Christianity, I'll say it that way, or, or I'll put it this way, uh, TV megachurch Christianity says, God's never mad, God's never unhappy, we shouldn't be afraid of God, he's only loving, he only loves you, just be happy, everybody just do what you want, and God will love you anyway, right, like have you heard that before, maybe not that song, I, I just made that one up, but, but we've all heard that, we've all heard that, that, that sentiment taught that, well, everybody's okay, just do what you want to, and God's going to love you in the end. We're all going to be okay. Here's what the Bible says, though. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And this is fear and trembling pointed at God. A righteous and holy and proper fear of God is a valuable thing for a believer. You know, it's not a coincidence that, the, that you used to hear all the time, well, he's a God-fearing man. And that was a pretty good phrase. A God-fearing man that means that I live my life based on the principles of God because I know God's powerful, right? In fact, the Bible tells us that God is a righteous judge. A righteous judge, just like we talked about last week, cannot let sin go unpunished, right? That's, that sounds really scary. I know, I, I, I can remember feeling like that's a terrifying thing. And his righteousness and his holiness as a judge is what caused him to give Jesus Christ to pay for our sins. Remember we talked about the propitiation, that he is the atonement for our sins. He paid that price. But now, now that we've been forgiven, now that Christ's blood has covered our sins, now that we are made new as in regeneration, here's what he says, don't forget who it is that you serve because he's not a measly little God. He's not a God that you just step on. He's not a God that you just ignore. He's not a God that just goes on and lets you do what you want to do. He's not a God that's interested in your comfort or your richness or your uh, progress in the world. He's not a God that cares for what the world tells you to care for. He's a God that has a purpose for you. And he says that we are supposed to be serving him. We're supposed to be working out our salvation with fear and trembling. You say, well, what do you mean? How How do we do that? Let's look at another verse. And we'll look at an Old Testament verse. Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 8 verse 13 and 14. So A was this. This is a a, a healthy fear that reminds us that in ourselves we fall wellfully short. We're way below where we need to be. We still need him. But look at uh, Isaiah chapter 8 verse 13 and 14. Here's what the Bible says. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. Pick this up. And he shall be your fear and he shall be your dread. Here's what he's saying. You should fear and tremble in the presence of the Lord. You should be afraid that you're not serving God the way he's called you. Now, here's why he says that. Listen to this. He says, he should be your fear. He should be your dread. Then he shall be your sanctuary. Here's what that verse teaches. Here's what he's saying. Here's how he means this. He says, when we rightfully fear God, there is nothing else that we must fear. When we rightfully fear God, when the fear that we have as humans is pointed only towards God, our only fear is God, our only trembling is God, the only concern that we have is that we please God, let me tell you what happens. Nothing else can scare you. Death doesn't scare you. Pain won't scare you. Loss won't scare you. But the only way you can get rid of those fears is when you have a proper and and right fear and trembling before the Lord. He must be your fear. He must be your dread. And when you focus to Him, that God, my whole life is to please you, my whole life is to follow you, you know what happens to the rest of your fears? They're gone because now God is your sanctuary. In fact, you see this played out. You look at Billy Graham's life. I challenge you to go and look at the life of Billy Graham and see that some of the obstacles that he had to overcome to win thousands for the cause of Christ. You know what? Every city didn't welcome him with open arms. Every place he went didn't welcome him with open arms. In fact, I'm reminded, I watched a documentary recently of when he went to North Korea. And not only did North Korea not really want him there, Americans didn't really want him going there. Nobody was on his side, but he knew God called me to go and reach these people. And I don't care if they're a, a communist country, I don't care if we support their leader. I'm going to preach the gospel. Now, I can remember he, it was in his own words. He was talking about how fearful he was going. Because he was in a room of dignitaries and of leadership that were North Korean, a communist country that's anti-Christian, and he's preaching the gospel. He's preaching the gospel and not pulling any punches. You say, how could he be so brave to do that? You want to know why he was brave to do that? Because he feared God, first and foremost, and God was his sanctuary. He said, God, if you want me to go, I know that you're going to provide for me. And even if I die, that was your plan, and that's okay you want to hear about that in the Bible. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were called. They were in the group of people, and the king said, Bow before me and worship at my altar. Worship me. And they said, No, we will only serve God. Now, as kids, we all heard the story, and they got thrown into the fire, and they were just happy and excited. And ah, God's going to protect us. I know that we have special fireproof clothing on or something. You know? that, that's how we thought about it as kids. But if you look at that passage, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, Our God will deliver us, but catch this. And even if he doesn't, it's his will that we be thrown into this furnace rather than to worship you. You want to talk about fear and trembling? You've got a thousand degree furnace. You're about to be thrown into it and they say, we think God's going to preserve us, but if it's his plan to let us die, we still want you to throw us in because we will not serve any other but God. You don't want to know what that is? God was their only fear. God was their only trembling, and because of that, they feared nothing else. You want us to be bold as believers? We want to make a difference in our community and in our world? We've got to have the boldness that only comes from having the right kind of fear for God. That's what we're called to do. He goes on further here. That fear and trembling is important for us to serve Him. Second thing, though... He calls us to work out the salvation, and he said that he is in wor- at work to allow this in you. That's the second point here under B. He says he is at work to allow this in you. I think this is really cool. If you look at verse 13, remember I told you there's two points to this. He says, for it is God who is at work in you, now catch what he says, both to will and to work. There's two sides to this. So the first thing is this. He changes your will to align up with his. Okay? So if you're a believer, and your fear is God, and your focus is God, and your priority is God, and you're following God, God's going to begin to change your desires. He's going to change your will. He's going to change what you see as success. He's going to change your dreams and your aspirations. He's going to change those to match up with what he made you to be. So that's good. That's really good. He changes how we feel about things. But he doesn't stop there. He also brings those things to pass See, what do you mean about that he gives us the will and then he does the work to bring that will to pass so when our will is changed to god's will in fact in in another passage paul says it this way if you are following god if you're serving him ask whatever you want and he's going to give it to you because your will is going to be aligned with his that's where we need to be. That's spiritual maturity. When what my desires are match up with God's desires so much so that I feel like God's just giving me everything I want because he's fulfilling his will through my life. That's what that looks like. And he goes on to say it this way. He says, not only is he going to give you the will and he's going to accomplish the will, he says it's for his good pleasure. This is where the, this is where the focus has to be. That he gives you that will and he fulfills that will because it's all a part of his plan. In the Old Testament we saw it this way. The way that we should pray is that if it's your will, I'll go and do this or go and do that. Our priority in life has got to be God. It can't be God, give me a nice house, give me a nice car, give me a good job. And then if you do all those things, I'm going to serve you. You'll never get there. It's not going to happen. Because no matter how nice the house is, you always need a nicer one. No matter how nice the car is, you always need a nicer one. No matter how great the job is, you're always looking for the next one. But if God is your priority, even if you don't have a perfect job, you can be content in it. If God is your priority, even if you don't have the perfect house, you can be happy in it. If God is your priority, even if you don't have a car, you can find joy in what God is doing for you. That's where we've got to be. You want to have contentment? You want to live peaceably with those around us? You want to grow in Christ? He's got to become our focus. We've got to fear and tremble before him. Not only that, we move on to number three. He says this, his word empowers us to work out our salvation. Look at this in verse number 16. Listen to what he says. Holding fast the word of life. This is why you hold fast to the word of life. That's the Bible he's talking about. So that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Here's what Paul's saying. He says, if you'll stick to the Bible, even if I'm not here preaching to you, even if you never hear a sermon again, if you'll stick to the Bible, when we get to heaven, I'll be able to point back and say, God changed them. And my life was not in vain because they served him because of his word. That's what he's talking about there. That's what he says. He says, if you will stick to God's word, if you'll hold fast to the Bible. In fact, we see that in John chapter 17 as well. Verse 17, the Bible says this, sanctify them in the truth. Listen to this, your word is is truth. You want to be sanctified? It's by God's Word. God's Word alone is what's gonna set you apart from the rest of the world. That's what's gonna make you different. That's what's gonna change who you are and cause you to live the way He's called you to live. We're gonna wrap up with this. Why? So we've looked at do I need to change? And We've seen we need to mature. We've looked at how do we change? And We see that God's worked into us and we must work out that salvation. And the third thing is why? Why should we change? Here's what the Bible says. Number three, we must be different so his light will be seen. Look at verse number 14 and 15 with me. The Bible says this, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Here's what he says. You're in the middle of corruption, perversion, a wicked world, and you have to be the light. Now, I don't think it's a coincidence how he opens that. He says, do nothing from grumbling or disputing. Let's, let's see how he says it exactly. He says, do all things, everything you do, do it without grumbling or disputing. You want to know how that looks? Listen, we all have preferences, right? We have preferences. We have food that we like. We have music that we like. We have, um, let's see, we have a temperature that we like in our house. We have a, uh, I'm trying to think, what are, what are some preferences? Help me out. What are, what are things that we have preferences about? Clothing. What we eat, uh, we definitely have those. I have lots of preferences about what I eat. What cover and pillow, it goes all the way to where you sleep. We have a preference, and in fact, that preference fits us right within our comfort zone, right? So when we have exactly the right pillow, exactly the right blanket, we got exactly the right food. The room is exactly the right temperature. We're listening to exactly the right music. And th- let me tell you something. This is what the world tells you. That's when you're going to be happy, when everything's just the way you want it. Here's what the Bible says. It's not about you. Forget about your preferences. Forget about what you want. Forget about how you like it. And it's not because we're just going to say, "Well, well, nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. I'm just going to cry." That's not, that's not how it is. That's not what we're saying. But as Christians, when we're mature, what we do is we say, "I can set my preference aside, because I want more to be reached by Christ." Right? Give it, going back to that lifeboat analogy, if we're going down the sea looking for those to save, maybe the seat's not always going to be that comfortable, right? Maybe the wind's gonna be blowing a little bit hard. Maybe there's gonna be things that just aren't exactly the way that we would want them to be. You know, it's not that cruise ship experience, but if we're going to reach those that need Christ, we have to be willing to be a little bit uncomfortable sometimes, right? As God does things in our church, you know what Satan wants to do? He wants to point out the things that are just not your preference. Well, I would prefer if we just did it this way. Well, I would prefer if Pastor John just didn't say it so loud. Or I would prefer if he would just not be so bald. Or I would prefer if we just didn't have so many songs. Or I would prefer blah, 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 blah. Let me tell you something. The Bible tells us this, that church is not about me. And church is not about you. Church is about us bringing glory to God. And as soon as we get our mind off of that, as soon as we start looking for our preferences, guess what? We're all going to find things. You know what? I could take it about five degrees cooler in here. And if it was five degrees cooler in here, there would be some of you with icicles off of your nose. I understand that. I get that. But you know what we do is we set our preference aside for the cause of others. Maybe sometimes we call that, and and this is the only time as Christians, we should compromise. You know what? I don't really like red. I wish we had blue carpet. Well, is that really going to change whether people come to Christ or not? Probably not. There's probably not, you know, sinners walking down the street saying, if I could only find a church with blue carpet, I would go there and I would get saved. But we get really occupied by those things. You know why Satan does that? Because if I'm worried about the color of the carpet or the temperature in the room or the sound of the music or the look of the pastor, if I'm worried about those things, I'm far less worried about those that are around me that need him and I should be pulling to safety. That's what Satan's doing. And I'll tell you the truth, myself included, he'll try to put preference in there. He'll say, you know what? We should, we should do this a little different. We should do that a little different. You know, you should change this and change that. You know what's something? I'll, I'm going to make a promise to you as a church. We will never change something just for the sake of change. When things change, it's trying to reach more people for the cause of Christ. And if I ever step out of that, if I ever change things just because they're my preference, call me on that. Because that's not the way it should be. My preferences are different. Let me tell you something. The truth of the matter is this. I am an old Kentucky boy. I think we should have a banjo every Sunday. I think we should have a washboard. There should be a stand-up bass. There should be somebody up here playing the mouth harp every Sunday, and we should all dance. Maybe not that far, but that's my preference of music. I like a twang. When you hear me sing, you probably think "I'm, I'm, I'm goofing off, but I like a little twang in the music, but you know what? It's not about my preference. It's not about our preferences. In fact, it's about Jesus Christ And bringing Him glory. And when we get real focused and real just laser focused on Jesus Christ, you know what He's going to start doing? Is bringing people through our doors that need Him and allowing us the opportunity to put our preferences aside and love them despite their differences. And love them despite their sin. And love them despite our different upbringing or our different ethnicity or our different mindsets or our different politics. That we will love them because Christ is what they need, not our preferences. That's what we've got to understand. That's what we've got to understand. And when when missionaries go to the mission field, one of the first things they're taught is that they're not there to Americanize their mission field. They don't go to make Russia more like America. They don't go to make Guatemala more like America. They go only to bring Christ. And all those traditions, all those mindsets that are outside of Christ have to be left behind. I'm going to challenge you as a church. Let's get that mindset. We're not here to make you just like each other. I'm not here to win you over to being a Kentucky Wildcats fan. Listen, I know it's a losing cause. Anthony's not there. He let okay, I was waiting for the thumbs down, but he's he's in the bathroom, so I dodged that one. We're here to love Christ and bring him glory. And that's where our focus has to be. So, last couple things here. We must be different so his light will be seen. We must like what I was just talking about is this. A, we must respond in Christ-like ways without grumbling or disputing. Second thing, letter B, we must prove. The difference he made in us. Look at verse 15. This sounds, you may read this verse and get really stressed out. Let me tell you something. When I read this verse, I get stressed out. Let's read it together. Verse 15 says this. So that you will prove yourselves, listen to this, to be blameless blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. Talk about a tall order. Here's what he just said blameless, innocent, above reproach. Does that describe any of you? Because it doesn't describe me. Does that describe you as a human? Because it doesn't describe me. And he goes on. Here's what he says. I want you to understand. He's not telling us to do something that's impossible. He's telling us that it is impossible in ourselves. We must have Christ. And here's what he means by that. If we look at the passage and how Paul uses these words, blameless, he says this, because we are forgiven. The only reason that we can be blameless is because Christ came and canceled the debt of our sin. Blameless because we're forgiven. Second thing, we're innocent because our debt has been canceled. Not only has he made us blameless, he's removed the debt. And finally, here's what he says. The third thing is he says is above reproach. That, the wording there, and they would have understood it. He was speaking to people that were familiar with the custom of sacrifice and familiar with the custom of covering sins with the blood of the animal. And here's what he's saying. This blameless is the word they would have used for a spotless lamb worthy to be sacrificed. Now let me show you something. If we were capable of being blameless if we were capable of being without blemish, the spotless lamb that had to be sacrificed to cover our sin, if we could do that, why did Christ come? Here's the answer. We couldn't do that. And so here's what he says. We are spotless. We are above reproach because Christ has made us white as snow. Look at this, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. The Bible says this. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, listen to this, they will be like wool. Here's the answer. You want to know how your sins are gone? Only by the blood of Jesus Christ. Only by the sacrifice that Jesus gave himself on the cross for our sins. And the only way that we became above reproach or innocent or blameless is because Christ removed the sin from our account. And that is where our righteousness comes from. That is where our holiness comes from. And so here's where it all boils down. Here's where it all comes to a head. Here's where the rubber hits the road for us as believers. Let me tell you something. If you're not a believer, today is the day. Christ has called you to salvation. And it's as simple as A, B, C. To A, admit that you're a sinner. All that is is saying that, yes, I am a failure. I have messed up. I do have blemishes. There is sin on my account. Admit that you're a sinner. B, believe that Jesus came and died on the cross. Believe that he came to be the propitiation, the atonement, the sacrifice for our sin. And C, confess that he's the only way to salvation. That if I'm going to be made new, that if I'm going to be made innocent, to be made blameless, to be made spotless, if that's going to happen in my life, it's only because of Jesus Christ. If you will commit those three things and commit your life to following the Christ that saved you, that's salvation. If you've never done that and you've never heard that before, today is the day to do that. But maybe you're here and you say, I am a believer and I do know Christ and I am a follower of Christ. But a lot of this still seems pretty foreign to me. I still really want my way. I still really like my preferences. I still really want to be comfortable. Let's look at letter B here. Or letter C actually. Here's the Bible calls us to. We must be in the midst, but different. We must be in the middle, but completely different. We must live in this world the way Paul says it I'm in the world, but not of the world. I am in there physically, geographically. I'm a part of this world, but I'm a, I'm a citizen of heaven. That's what he's talking about. Here's what he says in verse number. Verse number 15, the last part, it may say five there, I apologize, but it should be verse number 15 of Philippians chapter 2. Last part of the Bible, uh, verse 15 says this Uh, Children of God, listen to this, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Listen to what it's calling us to do. Among whom you appear as lights in the world. First thing I just want to realize out of this passage is this We are sent to where we are, we are on a mission. John chapter 17, verse 18, the Bible says this. It says, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. This is Jesus. And let, Actually, let me read you this whole passage just quickly. This is John chapter 17, starting in verse 13. It says, but now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, uh, to the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, listen to this, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. This is Jesus talking. He says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Do you catch what he's saying here? Jesus says, God, you put me on earth for a mission. In the same way that you put me on earth for a purpose, I'm putting these children of God on earth for a mission. You are on earth not to just get the most enjoyment out of it, not to just be comfortable in it, not to just be at ease in Zion, not to just be happy in yourself, not to just follow your preferences. You are on earth to reach others for the cause of Christ. We've been sent here to bring others to Christ. That's what the Bible's telling us here. He goes on further. He says that we have been sent to where we are. We're on a mission. The second thing is this. We are to stand out in our surroundings. We're to stand out in our surroundings. I'm going to let you look at those verses later. But I want us to focus on what the Bible says here in, uh, in verse number 14. He says that you are sent. You're in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as light. So here's the challenge today. How do we appear as light? We've got to abide in Christ, be changed by him, get our preferences out of the way, and love people. You say, that seems too simple. It's really not. Let me tell you something. When you get out in the world and you make contact with people and you genuinely love those that you come in contact with, it's almost like jumping in a cold pool, right? Have you ever been on a hot day and you jump in a cold pool and it's just shocking because the water temperature is so much different than the air temperature. Here's what he's saying. You are so different than the world around you if you truly love and truly follow Christ that it's going to be almost shocking to those around you when you actually love them when you actually show compassion for them, when you actually treat them like human beings, not like your slaves or not like your employees or not like you, they owe you something. If you actually love, honor, and respect people, you're going to have a great opportunity to bring them to Christ. The Bible's telling us that we're in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation, but because we follow and love God and because we're not focused on ourselves and because we're not selfish and lust-driven, we're focused on God, that love is going to shine to those around us. Here's my challenge today as our musicians come forward. Our question this morning was simple. It was short. It was simple. It was this. Do I need to change? How do I change? And why should I change? Here's your answer. We must grow in Christ by working out our salvation by His power in order to shine His light for the world to see. So here's the answer. There's a why, there's a how, and there's a yes, we should. We are called to be the light of the world. That's why we should be different. We can be changed because Christ has already given us the ability to be what he's called us to be. We just have to fear and focus on him. And we must be different because we shouldn't just be immature Christians all of our lives. We can't make a difference in our world if it's about our preferences and about what we want and about just getting everything exactly the way we want it. The world is not going to respond to that. Let's stand as we pray.